I wanted to take the opportunity to, to share from uh, what is my favorite uh, passage in Scripture, and that is um, from Luke 15. And so, uh, so this week and, and next week I'll be sharing from, uh, from this parable. But uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 11 if you've got your Bibles uh, and you want to read along. It says this, verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Oopsie daisy, my phone's done something. Ugh. Yeah, verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because... He has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A number of years ago, a guy called E. Stanley Jones wrote a book called uh, The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. And in that book, he, he said this. He said, My fear for the church of the future is not that they shall reject the kingdom of God, but that they shall, in fact, reduce it. Now, I love, I love the church, I really do, and I 100% believe that the church, the flourishing community of God, is the greatest apologetic for the resurrected Christ. The early church is great evidence of that, that something must have happened for them to do what they did they must have seen the resurrected Christ. Something came upon them. Someone came upon them. 
And I still believe that today, that the church, the flourishing community of God, 2,000 years later, is the greatest apologetic for the resurrected Christ. But I also believe that the church is in need of a reformation, a reforming around Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. We've just been doing a series on bearing witness as the flourishing community of God, and we talked about uh, these ideas of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy, and how they're important that we have right belief, right praxis, and right heart. My concern is that in the church in the West, we have elevated orthodoxy and orthopraxy above all else, and elevated having all the right beliefs in order. And that is what our apologetic is. Apologetic basically means the defense for the faith. And I think that has probably been uh, on its greatest display with um, the recent scandal and, and uh, passing of uh, someone who was, who we would say, the, one of the greatest apolog apologists of our time. Um, and some of you will know who I'm talking about. Last time I used the name, and this time I feel not to use the name. You can look it up if you want to. But uh, we had a, a guy who was really the greatest apologist of our time, someone who could defend the faith. As far as orthodoxy went, he was it. As far as right belief went, he was it. Uh, but it came out soon after he passed away that he was an abuser, a manipulator, a sexual predator. And we would say someone whose heart was far from God. Yet, as far as orthodoxy goes, on the money. See, what happens is... In our celebrity culture, our Western culture, we elevate a person. And this particular person, because of his status and his traveling the world, defending the faith, was actually disconnected from the greatest apologetic for the resurrected Christ, and that is the flourishing community of God. See, when, when the focus of the gospel is about what we are saved from, what we are saved into becomes a side note and we end up with a powerless gospel and a powerless, fearful church. We end up with being obsessed with drawing legalistic lines, what's right, what's wrong, who's in, who's out, have we done enough? The only logical conclusion when we start to build fences and draw legalistic lines is that everyone asks, what's the minimum I have to do to be in? Instead of a gospel where we are well diggers digging a gospel that brings life to those and people ask, how close can I get to the Father? Rather than, what's the minimum I have to do to be in? We end up reducing the most powerful, transformative, world-changing message to a message that is primarily focused on ourselves, our rights, our freedoms, rather than on God and what he is doing on the earth through spirit-filled, alive, world-changing, kingdom-focused, Jesus' image bearers. And we arrive again at the quote, 
My fear for the future of the church is not that they shall reject the kingdom of God, but that they shall, in fact, reduce it. See, there are times when someone writes something or says something, and it's a truth that sticks with me. I wrestle with it, I think about it, it undoes me, it offends me. And this quote from E. Stanley Jones is one of those truths. It's one of those truths that has stuck with me when I heard it many years ago. I think about it all the time, and I wrestle with it, and, and at times it has offended me, but truth is kind of like that. It has to offend us before it will set us free. I don't know if you've noticed, but the whole idea of itching ears wanting to hear what they want, have you ever noticed that itching ears only want to hear what they already agree with, no matter which side you are on, whether you're on the right, the left, up or down, itching ears want to hear what they already agree with. And if nothing else, this parable that Jesus tells tells us that the embodied, lived out truth of the gospel is more offensive to those who think they have it all figured it out. It's more offensive and most offensive to those who are more right than everyone else. The embodied gospel is the only theology that is truly Christian. Augustine once said that no matter how right we get our theology, if it's not producing more love, then we have it wrong. So my friends, I'd like to suggest that the good news of the gospel is actually about being saved into a family and an unshakable kingdom that operates on values and relationships and is expressed through family, not through rules and legalistic lines. We are the sons and daughters welcomed home with arms wide open into the center of family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, restored with all the rights and righteousness of the Son through this mystical union of being in Christ and Christ in us. Have you ever thought about the fact that what makes us a Christian is a mystery? It's actually a mystery. This union that, that Paul talks about, this union can only be described as mystical. It's supernatural. You cannot wrap your mind around this. You can only wrap your heart around it. And so as the body of Christ, this is actually our common union. This is what unites us. The union of Christ in us and us in Christ. This mystical union that, that you cannot wrap your head around, but only wrap your heart around. This is what unites us. Not ideologies. Not political ideologies, not religious ideologies. See, the writer of Hebrews describes this right-side-up kingdom in an upside-down world as unshakable. And, and even when everything around us is shaken, this internal reality of the king's domain within us is not shaken. Why? Because we have been welcomed home to a family, and what's true of Jesus is now true of you. And the beauty of this exchange is that we can do nothing to achieve it, earn it, or produce it. It is a gift of faith, and it's freely given. See, I wholeheartedly believe that God is looking for a church that is powerful, not in a takeover the world through force and political agenda kind of way, but a church that is powerful through love, sacrifice, and service. A, a church that doesn't oppose cultural trends, but disrupts cultural trends. 
with a kingdom's perspective. We are supposed to be an alternate community, a church that isn't focused on itself or protecting itself, but is focused on living in, participating in, and releasing the kingdom of heaven through every sphere of life. We are to bear witness to the kingdom. But my fear, as E. Stanley Jones writes, that in many ways we may have, in fact, reduced the kingdom. Reduced to political ideologies, religious ideologies. Even reduced it to a gospel of what happens when I die. I fear that Jesus and the cross have been reduced to a means to an end, and often that, that end is our own end. Jesus has been reduced to an atonement mechanism so I can be forgiven and secure my position in the right place when I die. So I would like to suggest that the gospel was not about a ticket to heaven or even a get-out-of-hell-free card. These may be benefits of the gospel, but they are certainly not the focus. So the gospel is more about getting heaven into us and getting the hell out of us so we can be a witness as the flourishing community of God, an alternate community, not a self-righteous, better-than-others people, but a humble, different people, laid-down lovers, apprentices of Jesus. So during Jesus' time, there were many rabbis, and rabbis would call people to follow them. And as a family or friends would send off a follower or a disciple, an apprentice of a rabbi, they would send them with this blessing. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And as we are called to follow Jesus, he calls us to follow him. May we be covered in the dust of our rabbi. So my prayer is that as we look again at this parable, that you would discover yourself afresh in it, that you would see that home is a place in the Father's heart and you've always been welcomed there. I, my prayer is that you would know that God is truly a good Father and no matter how lost you are, He is chasing you down with His unconditional love. I think the gospel was better than we ever thought. John Ortberg notes uh, in a commentary on this parable, he says, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the older brother. So Jesus uses this parable, but he uses it in, this, in the context, a cultural context. And... and when we, when we read this parable, we actually realize, uh, even though most translations will put that this is the story of the prodigal son, uh, that actually this parable is actually the story of the older brother. It's actually about a good father and the older brother. See, because Jesus is speaking straight into a context where, where the, the Pharisees have just accused him, have made an accusation against him and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The irony being that when you read Luke 14 that he's in a Pharisee's house at the time. But, but he's speaking straight into that and he starts to tell these parables of the lost coin and, and, and he leads into this parable of the two brothers. 
See, fundamentally with this parable, Jesus is addressing the religious Pharisees, but it's only in this third parable that Jesus actually puts the Pharisees into the story, and then he leaves them with a cliffhanger. So we see that the older brother is clearly a picture of the Pharisees and their self-righteousness they refuse to associate with sinners. Bitterness and resentment keep the older brother from forgiving his younger brother. It blinds him to the fact that all that is the father's is his and he was free to enjoy his relationship with the father. See, through this parable, Jesus is pulling on all sorts of Old Testament narratives and themes and plots, and we see right through the Old Testament, we've got stories of brotherly conflict, starting with Cain and Abel, and that story ends with murder. And we see with Jacob and Esau, this brotherly conflict that ends in reconciliation. Yet with this parable, the two brothers that Jesus uh, tells about, there is no resolution to the story. The listeners are invited to consider which ending will they choose. See, we are the sons and daughters that have been fully embraced in the arms of love. Freely you have received, freely give. See, we have a father who doesn't just possess love, but a father who is love. So to be found in God is to be found in love. To be possessed by the heart of God is to be possessed with a heart of love. So I want to invite you to listen to this parable again as we go through it so that we can hear the essence of the gospel again with fresh eyes to see that since the fall of humanity in the garden, Father has always been looking for his lost children who are hiding in shame, guilt, and condemnation. And what this story tells us is that the younger brother and the older brother are both just as lost as each other. But what this parable exposes is that there is only one who realizes it. So Jesus is doing a couple of things with this parable. He's revealing the true nature of God. He's revealing the, the Father's heart of redemption, reconciliation, grace, and mercy. And he's also revealing the Father's willingness to be misunderstood, ridiculed, and shamed. See, it would have been shameful for this father to restore the son within the community. And it highlights for us the fact that Jesus is always willing to be misunderstood to stand with the broken. But the other thing that Jesus is doing is he's exposing the Pharisees. See, this parable offends the self-righteousness out of us. It offends our legalism. It offends our ideas of grace and mercy. It offends our identities. It offends our minds and exposes our hearts. You know, I've discovered that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is life and freedom to the younger brothers in our world, and it is offensive to the older brother. It offends every fiber of self-righteousness. It opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
So we see in the story that the younger brother is displaying a spirit of, of entitlement. He demands his inheritance, heads off to experience all the pleasures of the world. He comes to the end of himself and decides that he would be better off just to be a servant in the father's house. See, the prodigal has determined in his heart that he is not worthy of sonship anymore. He is only worthy to be a servant in the father's house. Now, in some church circles, that would be maybe admirable. That would maybe be seen as noble to look upon ourselves with worthlessness and shame and actually say, well, actually just being a servant is uh, all we're worth, that just being a servant is enough. Unfortunately, this idea allows us to believe the lie of insignificance and we're left feeling powerless, insignificant, shameful and feeling worthless. Saved, sure, but still full of shame. We have pictured the cross as a place of our shame and guilt rather than place of, our, of freedom from shame and guilt. So the paradox here is that we are called to lead with the hearts of servants and serve with hearts of sons. But I, I believe that we have many prodigals who have come home but because of the lie of insignificance and only been told a reduced gospel, instead of the gospel of the kingdom, we have settled with being servants instead of sons and daughters. So what happens with that, we inevitably end up trying to find our significance in what we do or what we know, and instead of finding our significance in who we reveal and bearing witness to the kingdom. What happens with that? Unfortunately, it means that a lot of our service is actually self-serving. We serve to get others to like us, to be noticed, to be admired, to achieve our own goals, now this is not ministry, it is manipulation. So we see that the, this younger son, this younger brother, he has prepared a speech. He realizes he's better off being a servant and he prepares a speech, a repentance speech. He's, I can just imagine him you know, trying to figure out all the right words to put in, right, the right formula, how he can win the heart of his father over so that he would accept him again. Trying to put it all together. I, I wonder sometimes how, how often are we are trying to approach the father with the same mindset, thinking we have to have all the right words to somehow get his attention or somehow have the right you know, the right religious formula or the right things to have it all together so that we can get his attention or, 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 or reach his heart in some way. You know, somehow we need to turn the heart of God back towards us. But there is only one formula that catches the heart of God. It is the heartfelt cry of a lost son or daughter turning back to a loving father. A loving father who has been waiting for his lost son or daughter to come home. So this is a heart thing. The Christian faith is about orthopathy. It's about hearts connected. He gives us a new heart. 
He connects it with his so that we can reveal his heart to the world around us. A while ago, I was, um, we had our belong um, lunch and I was um, talking about what it means to belong and sonship and family and all, all of that sort of stuff. And, and while I was teaching on that, um, Israel, he was seven at the time, he came running into the, into the meeting and uh, interrupted the meeting going, Dad, 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 I need to tell you something. And so I, so I stopped the meeting and said, what, what's up, Israel? And he comes over and he whispers in, in my ear and he shows me he's, he's lost his tooth, his first tooth. You know, he's so excited he's lost his tooth. Um, and for me, that was just such a great opportunity to share with the group that this is our relationship with our father. Israel had absolute right to interrupt that meeting. In that moment, he had more right to my attention than anyone else in the room because he's my son. And we have that kind of access with our father. He's just looking for those, Daddy, Daddy, I lost my first tooth. Those moments of connection and heart. He's not looking for children that have it all in order. We don't have to have the right formula. So this is about our hearts. My heart aches for the body of Christ to know this truth as a deep revelation. See, the Father's back is never turned in disdain. His heart is never closed to us. He is not too busy for you, and your behavior does not change how he feels about you. See, my deep concern, and as I've studied this parable and read it so many times, and I've written so much about it, it seems that we have a lot of Christians working hard for the king as barefoot servants, many who know the message of the cross and even know the power of the spirit, but yet still have no idea how the father feels about them. So when I read the story, I see so many parallels with the stories of the two brothers that, uh, sorry, I see so many parallels and parables, parallels with the other stories in in scripture of brothers and that brotherly conflict. And we look at the first story of Cain and Abel and and this one ends in murder. What was the conflict over? Like this conflict that ends in, in murder between these two brothers, what was the dispute about? Have you ever noticed it was about an offering that God never asked for? This brotherly conflict ends in murder over an offering God never asked for. So I'm convinced that the sooner we realize that the only thing God requires of us is nothing, then we can stop the games of comparison and competition And all come to the Father with the heart of sonship that desires the will of the Father over our own will. 
See, Paul said in Romans 14, so let's agree to, to use all our energy in getting along with each other. Help others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. See, the environment of the older brother that the, and the environment that he has created is designed to protect himself. And, and we do that. We create environments to protect ourselves. We pull others down so that we might be protected. And, and we, we, we essentially, this environment is created to protect ourselves from ever being wrong. But the father, he, he restores this son who has gone away and squandered everything. He restores him and in one foul swoop restores the younger brother, restores his righteousness, his authority and his sonship. And we'll look at that in a second. But in the same time, he has completely pulled the rug out on the older brother's identity and fully exposed that his identity was based on his own self-righteousness. The older brother was so focused on himself, he didn't even know the son had come home. He finds out about the party, the celebration. In that culture, it was actually the role of the older son to throw the parties. But he's actually chosen to be a servant in the father's house and not a son. And he's working hard to please an already pleased father. He's working hard for the kingdom, but disconnected from the heart of the father. So we see that the father restores uh, the son. He puts a robe on him, and this robe represents righteousness, right standing, and right relationship. And he runs to the son. He, he runs to the son. In that culture, it would have been shameful for, for this father to run, to even just run. And he lifts his robe, and he runs to the son and covers him. He covers him before the community would stone him, because that would be the order of the day. The son has shamed this father. He deserved to be stoned. But yet this father runs to him and covers him. Puts on the robe of righteousness. Restores relationship. Puts the ring on his finger. The, the ring is the seal of sonship. It's, it's literally like the, he's restored the authority of the son. The, the ring would have been like the family seal. He would be able to transact again on the father's behalf. I once heard someone describe it as it was like the father gave the son the family credit card. And then he puts on the shoes, and the shoes are significant. They are what distinguished him from the servants in the father's house. And so servants didn't wear shoes. In the culture of, of the, that day, servants didn't wear shoes. Sons wore shoes. So imagine the scene. This disheveled, smelly prodigal has returned home expecting shame and condemnation, believing the very best outcome for him 
would be to be a servant in the father's house, yet he is clothed with the finest robe, given the family seal on his finger, and the shoes, the shoes complete the restoration and redemption of this lost son. The father is emphatically saying, you will not be a servant in my house. Have you ever have you ever thought about like have you ever really thought about that? And put yourself into that context and that story. I mean think about heaven. Who gets to be with God for eternity? Imagine getting there and being offended that some people you thought shouldn't have got in, got in. Well, they didn't have to do what I did. But like you earned it. They aren't as good a Christian as me. Like you've earned it. (laughs) See, this parable exposes those things if you're willing to sit with it long enough. See, what happens is we can easily end up with many prodigals that skip the father's house and go straight out to the field living in fear anxious about their standing with God, throwing their authority around with the mindset of a servant instead of the heart of a son. It's time for the barefoot older brothers to come home to the father's house. You have always been welcome here. Working in the field may be your assignment, but it is not your identity. See, the robe is the answer to, I have sinned. We are clothed in his righteousness. And the ring is the answer to, I am no more worthy to be called your son. And we are given the authority of God's kingdom. And the sandals are the answer to, make me one of your hired servants. We are fully restored as sons and daughters of a loving father. And the story ends with a feast, a celebration, a time of joy. But we also see that there's a cliffhanger. Will the older brother come in? Will he join the celebration? In Romans 14, verse 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of rules about food and drink, but it is in the realm of the Holy Spirit, filled with righteousness, peace, and joy. So this word righteousness, both in the context and in a Hebraic mindset, it means kindness in our relationships. It's about right-relatedness. 
right relatedness with others as well as right living. This idea of peace is not just about an end, but it's also about a means. That peace isn't an end in itself. Peace is how we live. So Jesus said that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And the kingdom is joy. It's unbridled, a deep wellspring, bubbling over unshakable, infectious joy. So these things are hallmarks of those who find themselves in the family of God. It's, it's a freedom that is uncontrolled and unmanaged. It's not external. The older brother is un- uncomfortable in these types of environments. It's too free, too uncontrolled, too unmanaged. So we finish this week with the cliffhanger. Will the older brother come home? And next week we're going to look at part two. What does it actually look like to turn for home? How are we in some ways living, acting and seeing as older brothers? And how can we repent and turn for home ourselves? Let me pray. And uh, music team, come, come back. We'll finish with the song, eh? Yeah. Father, we just thank you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that your kingdom is not just an idea. It's not an idea for us to just wrap our head around. Father, you give us a new heart. This is supernatural. What unites us is supernatural. I thank you that there is nothing we can do to earn it, achieve it, manipulate it. Your kingdom is an internal job. I thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our hearts. I thank you that as we get our hearts around this, we bear witness to your kingdom. Not even as something that we strive to do, but it just becomes who we are. That as we live in unity, as we love one another, as we look not to each other in comparison, but look to one another in love, that this is what shows the world, Jesus, that you are alive. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you do this work in us. As we open our hearts, you come in and do the heart surgery on us. We thank you for what you do, that you transform us. You lead us into truth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you lead us into the truth that offends us. 
I pray that we would not be ones with itching ears only trying to find what we already agree with. I pray that your truth would offend our ideologies, the things that we have found that separate us, the things that divide us, the things we use to build fences to keep people out. Pray that we would be well diggers, digging life, that many would come, find hope and restoration. Yeah, we thank you for what you're doing, Father. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's stand. Finish with a song. And, uh, Feel free to leave when you when you want to. Um, there'll be no tea and coffee, but yeah, bless you, and we'll see you next week. Hopefully, not in numbers of fifty.